Thank you, Riley, and everybody on the team for leading us in worship. Thank you, Joey, for those kind words. Uh, it is a delight to be here this morning, and I hope you know that today is the National Hugging Day. How many of you have already celebrated it? You've given a hug or received a hug? Don't be ashamed of National Hugging Day. One hand went up and went straight down. Okay, it's like four of you. Uh, give a hug. Take a hug. Receive a hug. Demand a hug. Do it all. Um, I was at the beach one time. Just wanted to spend some time alone. I'm sitting at the beach and just kind of, you know, praying, doing my thing. I'm in a hoodie. I'm just focused, looking at the water and enjoying my life. And there's a girl who's just kind of walking by and comes up to me and says, I had this urge that you needed a hug. Can I give you a hug? And I looked at her and said, no. She stood there awkwardly for a second and then walked away. Look, I'm Russian. Russian people don't hug. Because we kiss. On the lips. It's in the Bible. That's what you do. If you ever go to a Russian church, men, I warn you, stay away from the men in the church. Because it's men on men. The holy kiss is very much active in Russian churches, I have been kissed by an older man before in Russia, so it's a horrible experience. <laughs> but give a hug and receive a hug. Uh, this morning, as we think about hugging and all that good stuff, I want to talk about work. Work. We're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, and work and I'm going to put this school era of your life under the category of work. This is your job if you're currently a student and you're preparing for your career. And according to Forbes magazine, 53% of Americans are unhappy in their jobs. According to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, you're going to work between 40 and 45 hours a week for the rest of your life. Some will work much more. But average, Americans work 40 to 45 hours a week. 79% of the people who work, again, according to Forbes, do not love their jobs. In fact, they leave their jobs because of the people they work for or the people they work with. Maybe that's your current experience. You do not enjoy your job. Well, if that's it, let me give you some alternatives. There are jobs out there that you probably will enjoy. One of them is to be a professional snuggler, talking about hugging day. There's a job that pays you to hug people. It's about 100 bucks an hour, which is not bad, right? I mean, how many of you make 100 bucks an hour now? Giving you a great job offer. It's typically contained to the work environment, you know? So if you're at work and you haven't made too many friends and you you don't want to eat lunch alone, you can pay a dollar a minute for somebody to sit next to you and eat lunch with you. That becomes a very expensive lunch, a buck a minute. Or you can just ask somebody, come, I need a hug. It's just been a really difficult Excel spreadsheet moment. I need a hug right now. So there's a professional hugger, 100 bucks an hour. There's also those people who tag movies for Netflix, for example, and they get paid up to 85000 a year. And so you watch a movie, and then you have to tag the movie. You can also, I just found out this morning, do that for Hallmark movies. You can't pay me all the money in the world to watch Hallmark movies. Unless you like torture, that's what you'd like to do. 
I remember talking to my, my cousins and my, my sister, and they were talking about how much they love Hallmark movies, and they just stood there for 10 minutes listening and listening and listening and listening, and somehow I finally interjected and said, watching a Hallmark movie, it's like watching cats cross the street back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It is not an enjoyable moment. Yes, boys? These guys agree with me. Come on. Yes? Joey? His wife is next to him. That's why he's not saying anything. I'll ask him tomorrow at work. You can also be a CSO. You know about CFO, CEO, CTO, CIO. There's a CSO, Chief Shopping Officer. They make up to 300000 a year. You become a personal shopping officer for somebody, and you help them buy clothes and all that, and you manage their wardrobe. So if you like to be inside, that's one of your job opportunities. If you like to be outside, you, become a, you can become a dog walker. Those individuals make 150000 a year in New York City, walking dogs. There are rules you have to follow because apparently dogs know if you don't like dogs. And so you kind of have to be aware of that because they might bite you. You should not be texting while walking dogs because you might miss something bad happening to that dog. And it's very important that you arrange the dogs in a specific order. If you're doing like six to eight dogs at a time, This is what a professional dog walker says. You want the shy dogs on the outside and the troublemaking dogs close to yourself. Like in school, you put troublemaking kids close to the front row. Did you know that there's a science to dog walking? Wow, you guys are so just not into it. Okay. (laughs) My favorite is being a private island caretaker. 300K a year. You just care for that island. That's it. That's your life. That's like the dream job. Truly taking pictures, promoting that island for tourism. And for those of you who are super ambitious, you can be a professional sleeper. So you do. You go into luxury hotels and you test beds. And your job is to fall asleep on a mattress and then when you wake up to give a review of your sleeping experience. The pay, 18000 a year. So you might be below minimum wage in that job, but at least you've accomplished your goal. Of, being, of sleeping for the rest of your life. There are difficulties in jobs. You're never going to have the perfect job. You're going to have problems with your boss. You're going to have problems with your coworkers. Every place out there, will ex- you'll experience that in every place out there except for Grace Church because our boss is John MacArthur and nobody wants to leave John MacArthur as his boss. But the, you have difficulties in your work for the rest of your life. The Bible speaks a lot about work. There's so many passages you can turn to. Crosses is doing Proverbs these days, and you will get in your study in Proverbs to multiple passages on work. The expectation that God has of each of us as believers at work. Let me just give you a couple passages. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, and you need like an armed man. Or Proverbs 12.11, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. Or Proverbs 19.15, laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Proverbs 20, verse 13, Do not love sleep, or you will become poor. 
Open your eyes and you'll be satisfied with food. Proverbs 20, verse 13. The sluggard said, there's a lion on the road, a lion in the open square. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in a dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. What about Ecclesiastes, Solomon's book? Chapter 3, verse 12 says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift from God. Or chapter 3, verse 22, I've seen that nothing is better than that man should be glad in his works. For that is his portion. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? You turn to the New Testament, you have multiple passages. Ephesians 6 talks about slaves being obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service, as men-pleasers, not as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service, as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. 1 Timothy 6, the first two verses. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be dishonored. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these things. And then Colossians 3, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And there's many more passages speaking about work and how a Christian is to work. And as again, I say, this applies to us in our educational sphere. How you study and prepare for that career, those that whole experience and your commitment to that should be affected by the passages on work. Sometimes we think that work is a consequence of the fall. That's just not true. Steve Lawson says this, God did not create man for a vacation, but for an occupation. Because in Genesis 1, it says this, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In his image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From the very beginning of the introduction of the creation of men and women, there's an expectation of work even before sin entered the world. You see, God created us in his image, and he's a worker. Just read Genesis 1 and 2. And we are to be workers as we reflect the image of God. God is the first individual working in the Bible, not Adam. And so God sets that model and that paradigm to follow for every single believer. Psalm 8 says the heavens are the work of God's fingers. 
Tim Keller says this. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God with dirt under his fingernails. That's a beautiful picture demonstrating God's, God as worker. In the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the agent of creation. The entire Trinity was involved in the creation of this world and the universe, but Jesus is specifically presented as the agent of creation in John 1, in Hebrews 1, and Colossians 1. So if Genesis 1 and 2 affirm work as being an expectation before the fall, God models work for us, then the Christian needs to understand that our place in this world is to work. And there's a difference in our perspective as believers on work. This is what Martin Luther said. Your work is a very sacred matter. God delights in it. And through it, he wants to bestow his blessings on you. For the world doesn't consider labor a blessing. Therefore, it flees and hates it. But the pious who fear the Lord labor with a ready and cheerful heart. For they know God's command and will. Luther isn't saying that non-Christians don't work hard. What he's saying is that they have a different perspective on work. They have a different motivation and a different satisfaction in work from a believer. Solomon's explanation on work is clear in Ecclesiastes 1.3. This is the non-Christian's perspective on life and work. Ecclesiastes 1.3 says, Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, everything is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work that he does under the sun? It's vain. People seek to be satisfied with work. But you know that if you've ever been trapped in that environment, you're not. You cannot be satisfied with work. And so chapter 2 ends in this way of Ecclesiastes. So I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Because everything is futility and striving after wind. So Solomon's review of his work is that it's vain if you pursue it from a secular perspective. So how do we shift our point of view from frustration to fulfillment? And that's where Ecclesiastes 2.24 helps. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen it is a gift from the hand of God. Who can eat and have enjoyment without him? God is the one who enables us to enjoy work. And yet, in a fallen world, Genesis 3.19 rules. By the sweat of your face, you will work. That's a rule. It's a maxim. You cannot avoid that curse because of sin entering this world. And yet, we are expected to use our careers, our jobs... Not simply to do something eight hours a day or 12 hours a day, but to actually through that experience and that commitment and those hours to draw people to the gospel. In Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks to the servants and he says this, Urge the slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. 
so that they would beautify the gospel, that they would draw people to the gospel of Jesus Christ because of how they work. This is the expectation of every believer. And if you do the math of 45 to 50 hours a week, you will spend a third, and some will spend half of their lives working. MacArthur has been working in this church for 55 years. And many years before that, elsewhere. So how do we approach our careers? What's the profile of a Christian at work? I want to make sure you understand that what we're talking about this morning isn't limited to man as provider. The Bible speaks to both genders in regard to the work ethic. One of the most famous passages is Proverbs 31. I think all of us are familiar with that chapter, and that chapter sets us up and gives us an example of a hard-working woman. You can turn to it, Proverbs 31, and Ruth becomes an example of what we read in Proverbs 31. It's a long chapter, I'll just kind of skip around a little bit, but beginning in verse 13, this is what it says about the hard-working woman. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp doesn't go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes a covering for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Verse 27 says, she looks well to the ways of her household. She doesn't eat the bread of idleness. Verse 28 says, her children rise up and bless her. Her husband praises her. He says, "Many many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. And verse 31, give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is speaking of a married woman with children, and this is her life. She's entrepreneurial. She's hardworking. She doesn't sleep in. There's, of course, a balance in life, but you see the description of God's understanding of a godly woman is one who works. You see examples of women who work in the Bible. Lydia, in Acts 16, is a merchant. She deals in fine linen, which means that she had a very expensive shop in Philippi, something that you'd find on Rodeo Drive. That's what it means to be a dealer in purple fabrics in the ancient world. Ruth, in chapter 2, says she was working hard. Commentators have said that when she went out to work in the fields, she was probably bringing back 30 to 50 pounds of wheat. She's working six days a week caring for the household she was a part of. You see, the Old Testament model of women is a hard-working individual. In the New Testament, Titus 2.5 said that women are to be workers at home. It doesn't say only work at home. It just says workers at home. That is the priority. But that is not an exclusive environment where she works. In fact, the word for worker here means the guardian of the house. 
She's the guardian of her house. She thinks about his, uh, everything that has to do with her household. So while the priority biblically does fall on the married woman with kids to take care of the household and the family and the children, the Bible doesn't prohibit her from working outside the house. You won't find that in Scripture. It's a priority, but it certainly doesn't restrict her from working outside the house. Back in Proverbs 31, in verse 31, it says, Let her works praise her in the gates. In verse 23, it says her husband is known in the gates among the elders. And he's known there because of her. She gives him the reputation that he has in the gates because of her work ethic. The idea there, the gates would be where the elders of Israel would gather. It's like being a part of Congress or the parliament. If your name is known at the highest level of political leadership, you know that you have excelled in something. And that is the woman of Proverbs 31. I want to make sure ladies understand that the Bible does not limit you in some way. It doesn't restrict you. It expects the same work ethic of you as of the man. Yes, the man is the priority. Genesis 3.19 makes it clear that he's the provider, and by the sweat of his brow he will work. And the woman who's married with a family provides and cares for the house. But if God created you with an entrepreneurial gene, with a desire to start businesses, and you can manage all that amidst your family responsibilities, the Bible celebrates that. And the Bible teaches us how to have a balanced perspective. It really, Proverbs 31, 31 is an example of what Proverbs twenty two twenty nine 29 says. Do you see a man, say individual, skilled in his work? He'll stand before kings. He won't stand before obscure men. Your reputation will echo in the halls of the leaders of your workplace. They'll notice you. They'll talk about you. They'll promote you. And they'll give you more and more responsibilities. And that is biblical. That is a biblical model. So with all that in mind, a theology of work, we have to bring that mindset to our passage for this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me read for us verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, right in the middle of the verse, we urge you, brothers, to excel still more, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. The phrase that governs this entire section is excel still more. You see that at the end of verse 1, and the context there is holiness and sanctification. You see that in verse 9, excel still more in the context of love. And you see that in verse 10, excel still more in your work, in your commitment to your career. And even here, you have to understand, even though it says brothers in the middle of verse 10, it's not limiting this expectation to men. Because if you keep reading the rest of the chapter, the brothers are the ones who are mentioned as those who will be raptured. So if you're going to be consistent, you're basically saying, because it says brothers, that's it, directing men to work hard, then the ladies are staying here for the tribulation. So sorry, ladies. Maybe the false gospel of Thomas is right. There's a conversation in this false gospel of Thomas where Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, Mary isn't a man. How is she going to get into heaven? And Jesus says, Peter, come down. I'm going to make her a man so she can go into heaven. 
So either that's true, which is not. It's a false gospel. Please, don't go reading the non-canonical gospel of Thomas. Brothers, in verse 10, doesn't limit this discussion to men. To everyone. So Paul, in this little section, gives us, under this paradigm of excellence, excel still more, six specific principles that should govern our careers. As you prepare for your career, think about this. If you're currently in a career, if you're currently at any job, remember that this is the New Testament expectation of you as a believer. And the first principle that should govern your job is excellence. Excel still more at the end of verse 10. The idea behind this statement is progress, advancement. If you think about the last hundred years of civilization, it's characterized by that word. Progress. We went from horses to cars to planes to private space travel in the last hundred years. We went from phones to computers to virtual reality to the meta universe to now the Apple Vision Pro glasses that are being promoted these days. We went from magazines where you have to cut out your coupons to buy something on a, at a discount, to now Amazon predicting your shopping habits and tells you what you should buy next at a discount. Society went from paying with salt for goods in the Roman Empire to coins, to credit cards, to phones, to paying with your Apple Watch, to paying with your face, and now to paying with your palm. That's where we are. That's progress. That's advancement. You can make that statement about the medical field, the scientific field, or technology. Our world is characterized by progress. Paul picks up that idea and says, your life at work should be characterized by progress, by advancement, by excellence. As much as you should excel at holiness, verse 1, as much as you should excel at loving other people, Verse 9, you should excel at your job. Pursue holiness, love, and excellence at work. Keep studying. Get more degrees if God allows you with your time and with your finances. Don't just get a BA. If God gives you the opportunity and you're able to live a balanced life that has a responsibility at church and the family and you're able to satisfy all those responsibilities, keep going forward. A Christian understands that we work for the Lord. That's Colossians 3. It's as if your immediate supervisor, your manager, your lead partner is Jesus Christ. So when you interact with your superior, that's what the Bible says. Imagine Jesus being your direct superior. How would you work then if that was happening literally? I think it'd be characterized by progress and improvement and excellence. But there's a second principle that should govern us at work, and that is peace. Back to our passage. Paul says, excel still more and make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. The context is work. Be known for not being divisive at work. For being a peacemaker at work. Paul brings in a word that he only uses three times in the entire New Testament. And nobody else uses this word. It's the word ambition. When that happens in the Bible, this is just a quick note for us understanding Scripture. That elevates 
the weightiness and the value and the meaning of that word in those passages. It's as if Paul went out of his way to use a word that was so unique for this context. So he says, make it your ambition to be peaceful at work. The meaning behind that word has to do with our doing one another. The context of that word in the Roman world was politics. It's the senators, the generals who would try to outdo each other with good works in the city in order to get a name and a vote. And so they tried to do all these public works and be recognized by the citizens in order to be voted into office. And so oftentimes it was all about being noticed. It's the election cycle. We're in it right now. We can't understand what that looks like. Where politicians are oftentimes slamming one, slandering one another, but at the same time trying to do good. Biden just forgave $5 billion in loans, I think last week. Paul takes on this word and says, at work, make sure that your reputation is of one who is a peacemaker and you are at the front of the line. You are outdoing other people as a peacemaker. The value of this word gets elevated by understanding where else Paul uses it. In Romans 15, verse 20, Paul uses the same word. And he says this, It is my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. So Paul uses this word in the context of preaching the gospel in a distant land, in a land where nobody knows Christ. So it's a gospel advancing word. The other use is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says the following, We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, alive or dead, to be pleasing to him. So for the Christian, you have an ambition to advance the gospel everywhere, don't we? I think all of us would say, yes, that is my desire, that is my prayer. And if God sends me on a missions trip, whether it's on a short-term trip or for the rest of my life, I want to have that ambition to advance the gospel. Secondly, I think it is your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord, no matter what, isn't it? That's what you want to do. So then when you understand this, it's about gospel advancement. It's about being pleasing to the Lord in everything. That is my ambition. You bring that meaning here. Paul says, make it your ambition to the same degree of intensity that you are a peacemaker at work. You're not divisive. You don't meddle in other people's business. You mind your own business. That's what Paul is saying. And you excel at this. You lead a quiet life. In Romans chapter 16, we have a list of Paul's co-workers. Just lots of different names. In verse 6, he says this, Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. There's others who just are workers. But he separates Mary, whoever that is. That's all we know about Mary. Nothing else that she was a hard worker. You skip down to verse 12. In the middle of the verse, he says, Greet Persis, the beloved. He has worked hard in the Lord. What a reputation to leave behind. And that's all we know about Persis and Mary. 
They are hard workers. And then look at verse 17. Paul says, I urge you, this is his final charge in the book. I urge you, brothers, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. This is the opposite of peace. In verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So if Satan is the antithesis to the God of peace who's being crushed, that means the dissensions, which are the opposite of peace, are being infused and motivated by Satan. That's the theological connection of dissensions and the opposite of peace. It is a satanically empowered pursuit. That's Paul's last charge. Make sure you watch out for divisive people. As a Christian, we are peaceable at work. How do we do that? With the third principle, contentment. Contentment, and that takes us to the next phrase, attend to your own business. Mind your own affairs. In 2 Thessalonians 3.11, Paul says, we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. 1 Peter 4.15 says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. That's a pretty severe list. Murder, thievery, evildoing, and meddling in other people's business. We minimize that sin, but Peter doesn't. He puts it on that same list of vices. When you start meddling in other people's business because you're not content with your own responsibility, your own job description, your own expectations from your boss, you become a busybody, you're discontent, and you're not minding your own affairs. You know what that's like. It's kind of like watching a kid next to an adult who turns on his phone to see something and the children just flock. They're intrigued. They're curious. They're busy about it. So what's going on on that phone? And sometimes the parent pushes the child away. It's like, you shouldn't be seeing this. It's like that. When you just gravitate to other people's business, and Paul says, mind your own business. How do you do that? You live out the fourth principle. Diligence. Diligence. You work with your own hands, verse 11. You work with your own hands. I love this quote from Marcus Aurelius, who was an emperor at the end of the second century in the Roman Empire. He's called the last of the good emperors. He wasn't a good man. He persecuted Christians. He was a philosopher. But this is what he wrote about work. At dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. What do I have to complain of? If I'm going to do what I was born for, the things I was brought into the world to do? Or is this what I was created for? To huddle under the blankets and stay warm. Marcus Aurelius says, why were you born? To stay in bed all day or to get to work? Now, yesterday was a cold day, rainy day. It's an exception to this quote. <laughs> it's okay if you spend eight hours in bed. But even a non-Christian, Christian persecuting leader understands that man was created to work. And we do that work to the glory of God, whatever you do. Even something as simple as eating and drinking. In the context of 1 Corinthians 10, that's in the, in the ministry community. We're not supposed to stumble other people in your decisions of Christian liberties, of what you drink and what you eat. But Paul says, simplify your life. You do everything for the glory of God. 
And sin, unfortunately, twists and corrupts everything, including work. And so we gravitate towards one of those two corruptions. One is laziness. We avoid work. That's a consequence of sin. We avoid work. And yet, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, there's nothing better for a man than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. That's a gift from God. Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Tim Challies says this about work. Work is not significant only when it utilizes my full capacity or full capabilities. Work is not significant only when it offers unusual challenge or special opportunity. Work is not significant only when it is measurable in dollars and cents or praise and compliments. Work has intrinsic significance because it gives me the opportunity to do something with joy, with joy in the Lord. I can do my work in such a way that it glorifies God, or I can do it in such a way that it dishonors Him. Anything I can do to do to God's glory has significance. It has great significance. That's why we work hard, because ultimately we do it for the glory of God. So instead of avoiding work, remember, God expects you to work. God created you to work. And you're to excel at whatever your hand finds to do. But the second corruption is we become workaholics. Some are lazy and some become workaholics. Meaning you derive your identity from work. Harold Abrams, a runner from the Chariots of Fire story, says this. When he was asked, why do you run? He says, I run because I have 10 seconds to justify the meaning of my existence. That's a workaholic. The identity is fully derived from what you do. Madonna says this in an interview. Nobody works the way I work. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me, pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. That's the non-Christian perspective on work who's a workaholic. Everything is immersed in the work that I do. And apart from working, I have no meaning in my life. Certainly, we justify being workaholics by providing for our family, and we need to make more money so we can give more money. The biblical expectation is that we don't find our identity in work. We find it in Christ. You are in Christ. And that's really the fundamental issue. Are you in Christ? Have you been rescued from this mindset of either laziness or workaholism? Christ is your Savior. You understood that you were a sinner and you needed a Savior, and so you asked Him for forgiveness. And He forgave you all of your sins. And He brought you into His family, and He's your older brother, and you model your life after Him in work, in rest. 
In the pursuit of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our model. And we do that if we are in Christ. And then work becomes a utility, a means of us glorifying God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then we find our meaning in that pursuit, not in the act of working. You see, when God told Adam to work, he didn't leave him alone. The relationship continued. God still wanted to have a relationship with Adam, even though he was responsible to be a worker. Well, there's a fifth principle that should govern us, and that is dignity. In the middle of the verse 11, it says, Work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. And then Paul says in verse 12, so that you will behave properly toward the outsiders. This is the idea of dignity. So that your reputation with those who are non-believers is a dignified reputation. This is all about proper decorum. Just think about the British royal family. And every single time they're in the public, they have to stand at a certain place. They have to stand in a certain order. They have to dress appropriately. Because it's all about dignity. They're representing the office of the British crown. And so Paul uses that language to say your Christian work ethic needs to be dignified. It's as if you're in the White House. How you talk, how you work, how you dress, your attitude, all of that has to be dignified at work. Paul says a Christian is a dignitary at work because people are watching. And they're connecting your gospel presentation to your work ethic. Well, there's a last principle, and that is success. Verse 12, and not be in any need. Not be in any need. We looked at some of those passages in Proverbs. If you work hard, the general rule is that you won't be in need. I'm not saying there's no poverty. I'm not saying there's not a place in a Christian community where you approach the church for help. We do that here. That's why we have the deacons fund. You hear the announcement at the end of every communion service that please give money so we can serve the people who have needs. That's appropriate within the Christian community. But there's also an element that Paul says, if you work hard, then you will not be in any need. Now, he's correcting the attitude of the Thessalonians who stopped working because they thought the rapture is about to happen tomorrow. And so he said, forget everything. I'm just going to stand like this and wait for the rapture. Get up there. I want to go as fast as possible. Paul says, that's not how we live the Christian life. We have a task to accomplish. We have a mission to fulfill, advance the gospel. And we have a responsibility to work unto the Lord. This is Paul's paradigm for the Christian worker. And you only have a certain amount of years to glorify God through your job. Somebody was killed in a car accident just on Friday, 22 years old. The family comes here for 20 years. His birthday was yesterday. He didn't know that on Friday he would die. You have no idea when God will take you. But until then, you will spend if God gives you a long life, a third to perhaps half of your life working. In that environment, glorify God. And Tim Challies reminds us one more time. Every day and every moment, I have the choice before me. 
Will I do my work in such a way that it glorifies God? Or will I do my work in such a way that it dishonors and displeases him? In the face of such questions, I know my work matters. No matter what my work is, it matters. It matters because my work is a stage to bring glory to my God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray to that end. Lord God, we want to glorify you with our lives. We want to glorify you with everything, our desires, our ambitions, our pursuits, our pursuit of holiness, and our pursuit of being an excellent worker in the career that you have provided for us. And as some are still preparing for that career, impress onto their minds the importance of even doing that preparation to the glory of your name. We pray this because we do want to be pleasing to you. That is our ambition in everything. Amen.